Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 21st, 2014. This is episode 1470 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Thinks, sorry there. Eight six six sixty five. Think eight six 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 five. T H I N K. The actual numbers behind that eight six 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 five eight forty four sixty five. Call that number. Leave your question, comment, point, consideration, whatever it may be, and I will try to get you on a future show. About half of the calls that come in right now, I would say, are getting on the air sooner or later. If you don't hear yourself within a couple weeks, I'd go ahead and call again. It's just out of habit recently. I've been uh, screening calls from uh, newest to oldest, so calling on Thursday and Friday has been uh, profitable for people, so to say. Uh, make sure of a couple things, though. Call from a quiet location. Call with good bars on your phone if you're using a cell phone. Speak clearly and do, a, do me a big favor, because there are calls that were good enough that I just can't fix because it's too bad, but it almost sounds like you're doing this. You're talking to me and you're asking me a question, and then you turn your head away from the phone line like that, and you keep asking me a question, and then it comes back up like this, and you're still asking me a question, and then your head must turn away from the phone. I don't really understand how that happens, but it kind of sounds like that. Um, when you do that, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to fix your call when some of it's so quiet, it's illegible. Also, don't use weed eaters or, or chainsaws or ride on motorcycles while making your call or call from giant trucks with the windows open running at 80 miles an hour. Those things are the things that will get you not on the air. Asking your question, making your point in the first 30 seconds, and then giving me your details afterward, that's the kind of thing that will get you on the air. Anyway, with that... Uh, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. The awesome Frank Sharp Jr. will help you complete that linchpin, that top of the triangle of gun operator efficiency. Remember, when it comes to being an operator of a firearm, you have three components, the gun, the ammo, and the operator. And any one of those not being present presents a problem. You can be a great operator and have no gun. You don't have a gun. You can have a gun and be a great operator and have no ammo. You've got an overpriced club. But the gun and the ammo are commodities. They can be purchased in known, known quality and quantity off the shelf, and you own them, and they're yours, and you have them, as long as you don't live in a place where it's illegal to, like, have rights. Um, but uh, when it comes to being the operator, that's something you have to work on. You need good training, and Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors will give you some of the best. Check them out today at Fortress Defense Consultants. Next up today, ready-made resources, all the resources you need for your preps, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website, and uh, you'll get exactly what you're promised. All those resources, ready-made, ready to go, shipped to you really quick with great service and great pricing. ReadyMadeResources.com, long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Uh, well over five years that these guys have been sponsoring what we do, and they have a great new website. Uh, you should check out their website. They've made it a lot better, a lot easier to navigate, a lot easier to find stuff, and they've added some really cool stuff. So check out what Robert's done over at ReadyMadeResources.com if you haven't been there lately. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade, and i got to tell you something about the MSB. It just got a lot better. 
Now, I put out a post this morning about it, and I have an addition from the last time I told you what got added. But let me just tell you what I've added to the MSB this week, just this week. Doctor's Nutrition, uh, that's Dr. Stephen Lewis and his wife, Janet. They're awesome. I've had great feedback from the audience using their supplements and working with them with their lab-based recommendations. They do labs before they recommend that you take something, which just makes freaking sense. Everybody that's used them, including my own wife, loves them. 10% discount on all of their supplements. That's a big deal. Um, generally, they, they recommend quite a bit for most people to get you back on track. That discount alone will pay for people's memberships. There's people already working with them, already happy that will get that discount, uh, that are already members, and all it's going to do is make them spend less money. I'm really happy when I can do something like that for people. Next up today, Beth Warford of Pretty Loaded has an awesome training program for situational awareness, specifically geared to women. 20% discount at, 20, uh, at prettyloaded.org. You can get that discount in the MSB. Andrew McKnight, awesome, awesome singer from Appalachia, from West Virginia, has played with folks like folks from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and what have you. He's an amazing guy. Really beautiful music, 15% off all his music. Uh, when it comes to Christmas time, you know, I'm big on the downloads. You can buy it on download from him, but CDs you can put in a box and give to somebody. And this would be something unique that a lot of people, I think, would really enjoy. Get on his site, check out some of his music, and consider maybe purchasing some of it for Christmas. And if you do, you get 15% off. Lenwood Leather, they're back in the MSB, 20% off site-wide, really high-end custom stuff. If you can think of it, uh, Jason over there can build it for you, and he does great work. Next up, the new edition this week, HiddenTruckBox.com. This is just for F-150 owners, but it is a very cool mounted toolbox behind under your hood where it will never be seen. And I uh, got you guys a 10% discount off of those. They're custom built to order. Uh, for F-150 owners only, though, at this time, if you can get enough business, uh, Dan over there is going to uh, to maybe do other things at some point, but he started out with F-150 as well. Most popular truck on the road, he owns one, so he can make sure that they're going to fit before he ships them out to you. Next up today, I wanted to let you know that Dan Malone from HiddenTruckBox.com took some initiative, went on the TSP Wiki, and created a community business directory. This is for anybody that is a member of our community, that has a side business that wants the link to it from that spot on the wiki so that our community can do business with its, with its own community, within itself. We'll have to keep an eye on it for spammers and things like that. And remember, anybody can edit to wiki. That means you can help us get rid of spammers. Um, but this is for community members, and it serves another purpose. It's kind of a percolator now for MSB and other things that I can do and working with people as sponsorships and, and what have you. A lot of people start up a business, and I encourage you to do that. And then they come to me, I want to do a discount, I want to do a discount. I'm like, you have no track record, you have no customers, you're ju you just put your product out yesterday, can't do it. So this is also a nice place, make a little bit of a business percolator. You can get some customers, learn about your business, make sure it's working right, and then maybe we can talk about doing something at a higher level. Uh, and anybody can, can be part of the community business directory. Uh, there's a link in the, uh, in the post that I did today how to get to that. It's on the wiki. Uh, so that's awesome that we've added all that. So consider joining the MSB if you haven't. Those are just great additions. Now let us talk about the year that was the episode. Uh, I have The Return of the King and Sanctuary Cities and Game of Thrones, The Last Feudal Battle. I'm going to read the Game of Thrones one to you because I think it has a big lesson for us in modern day that most people would miss. Trial by combat is not exactly illegal, but it's no longer an option in court for settling one's differences. Yet it still happens. Thomas Talbot of the 2nd Baron LaSalle 
His grandmother has died. This means he inherits her holdings, which include a disputed claim to the lands of William of Buckley, the first Marquis. Naturally, Marquis Buckley disputes the claim, so Baron LaSalle challenges Berkeley to a trial by combat to settle the dispute. By combat, they mean a battle between feudal armies. The barons don't maintain large standing armies, but they can muster the local peasants to fight on their behalf. The Battle of Nibley Green will be the, the last of such ancient traditions. This is not a duel or anything like it. This is a settlement over a dispute over money. Baron LaSalle will be killed during the fighting, thus settling the dispute. My take by Alex Shrugged, the Boston Tea Party of 1773, the English Parliament attempted to ban trial by combat. They were unsuccessful. I could not find a reason why they even ex tried, except that Governor Hutchinson was the tea merchant who was out of money for the tea. Perhaps he was afraid someone would claim trial by combat over the disputed payment. Trial by combat was finally removed from English law in 1819. Since the United States inherited the English common law system before that time, it begs the question of whether it remains the right of the American people. We are not talking about dueling. We are talking about allowing combat to be the decisive factor in a dispute, saying I won because God, love, and the great pumpkin were on my side. In a sense, this is exactly what people think when they win most anything. But as Lincoln once said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side, My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. I think something got glossed over there in Alex's take on the, the history segment today is that people always think when they win that they were, that means they were right. I think that's one of the most screwed up things in American culture today and modern society today as a whole. Uh, when an election's over, generally the side that came out ahead says, now everybody shut up and do what we say. You, you lost, it's over. That's not how a republic works. The minority has rights, the minority has powers, etc. Uh, now, it's all a pantomime anymore, and it, you live in an oligarchy, but the, the sentiment that if the, if the Republicans take over, then everything they want should just happen, or when the Democrats took over, that was their attitude, right? So that's just part of that, though. But people think this is the sporting events, right? If your team wins, that means you're better. Well, you didn't do anything. You watched the game. And it's like that in everything in America today. Whenever someone wins, it means that they were correct. And it's part of the nostalgia that's hung on with the good always win. The good guy always gets the girl. He always wins. He always rides away in the sunset. The ending of those movies have changed, but it's so ingrained in our mindset that we believe that winning in of itself equals being right many times. It does not. In fact, many times, evil and wrong win. It happens often. Uh, it happens with the oppression of individual rights on a daily basis, sadly, in our nation and around the world. Please remember that just because somebody won doesn't mean that they were right. In some cases, it doesn't even mean that they were better. Um, now, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And what I want to do, though, is I just want to say before I take your first call, thank you and what a week. You guys realize what a big week this was? First of all, as I said at the beginning, five new vendors into the MSB. That's pretty cool. Um, but we launched Gen4.com on Indiegogo. It's funded to almost $8,000. Uh, if you're considering helping out with Gen4, please do. Um, I, we, we are at a point now where we know we can build the basic beta and we can pay for the video work we had done, and, and so it's going to happen. And that's, that's huge because this is a dream come true for me to make this a reality. Um, But we have a much bigger goal because we want to do a lot more for people with Gen Ford 
And if you don't know about it, just go to genforward.com. It goes right to our Indiegogo campaign. Um, please tell other people about this. Put it on Facebook. Uh, share it with others. Call relatives. Tell them about it. Hey, Christmas is coming up. You know, if you jump on it like a $100 level or something like that, you get free ones to give away. We won't have the platform ready by Christmas, but you can give those memberships to family members, brothers and sisters, et cetera, that have kids uh, or grandparents, et cetera. Anybody that's savvy enough to use Facebook is going to be savvy enough to use this. It's not going to be that hard. And we're already talking to a lot of people about things that they're going to want out of it. We've come up with some really cool stuff. And frankly, the more we can raise in our crowdfunding, the more we can do. The other thing is CAC teams, as we put out yesterday, launched. The disaster response team. I'm excited to volunteer to the organization that I created in my head. Because um, once that got running, I got out of the way and let the team put it together. And I'm stoked now, man. I'm, I, I told Stephen, you need to put out a table of operations and equipment for individual volunteers with feeder vehicles and for anchor vehicles. I'm like, I'm going to configure my stuff uh, out of my own pocket. And I, I am jazzed up about volunteering to be a CAC responder. Uh, and I'll tell you what. I'm not, I'm not even putting in for the job of regional coordinator. I think that's the person that's doing that job needs to be someone that during a disaster could just say, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and I don't know that I'll be able to do that, but I know some of you out there are. And my region needs a disaster, uh, a regional coordinator. So, hey, uh, you know, come on and, uh, volunteer to do that job if you, if you want to be considered for it. Since yesterday, we've had 27 volunteers and six regional director candidates sign up. So that's great. And remember, you can contribute some money there. Um, the whole point of CAC is so that you can donate during a disaster and we can put the money to work right then. Uh, so it's not like we want to build up a huge war chest, but getting the anchor vehicles equipped and all does take some money. So consider, you know, throwing a couple bucks. You can donate pretty much any amount you want to to CAC. It is a 501c3 not-for-profit charitable organization, so it is tax-deductible as well. All right, and it's just a, what a big week. So thank you so much for everything you guys do to help me out. We've got the, the business directory now. This is a great week. And, um, again, just thank you. Thank you to all you guys that listen, share the show. Man, you guys, you make this worth doing uh, by your activity, your excitement, telling me what's going on in your lives. I've heard from so many great people this week about things that are going on. I also heard from someone who's not really a listener, but... Um, Her partner was a listener and, and, and passed away recently, and um, so that was a sad part of the week. Um, but there's even a little bit of a legacy that's been created on that, and uh, so thank you guys. I think that TSP really makes a difference in people's lives, but it's not because of me. It's because of the community as a whole. You guys on Zello, the forums, you name it. You guys rock. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Nick in Colorado, username Nick Bird on blog. And my question and comment is in response to your show on putting down roots. Uh, even with the advantages you gave in putting down roots, which I agree with, uh, do you think mobility and flexibility in one's lifestyle will nonetheless play a more important role for workers in the future job market? Details. Uh, I've been keeping my job search profiles open, you know, just in case. And one big change in job availability I've seen in the past year or so is in the... Uh, increase in the number of temporary contract positions in the IT and technical fields relative to like the permanent positions available. Uh, these contract positions are mostly skilled technical jobs and are higher paying than my equivalent permanent job but are offering no benefits and exclusively through recruiting agencies. 
I've been seeing a lot of these. And called by a lot of these headhunters that confirmed this, he warned man for the contract versus permanent positions, and even referred to the Affordable Care Act as, you know, maybe being one of those motivations. So, taking this and move towards automation and the various other changes in the labor market step further, I think this might signal a new trend where more people kind of constitute a new demographic of hypermobile workers and professionals, people with like in-demand skills that only stay with particular employers or locations for six to 24 months or so at a time. Um, you outlined, you know, pretty well the advantages of putting down roots, but I think for better or worse, many just might not have that option and still get a paycheck. Uh, found being mobile works worked really well for me, but I have a feeling it'll become more of a necessity instead of an option like it was for me, especially for the younger workers whose only or biggest competitive advantage might be that ability or willingness to relocate. So, taking that a step further, perhaps those who really want to put down roots will tend to gravitate more towards entrepreneurship out of necessity. Uh, at least that's a motivation for me. And taking further yet, maybe there will be some interesting business opportunities offering services services or something to this new demographic. Maybe boarding houses will make a resurgence. Anyway, what's your take on this? Thanks, Jack. Uh, yes, it is an ongoing thing. It is real. It is accelerating. Obamacare has something to do with it, at least a little bit. And it is uh, it is going to continue, and it's going to be something to definitely be aware of and possibly utilize for your own benefit. However, there are some ways to maybe capitalize on the thing, uh, the whole concept, without necessarily moving every couple months or three months or four months. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. Yeah, Obamacare is part of this, but the overall cost of, it, of keeping employees employed has continuously gone up and up and up. And you have to understand right now what's really going on, especially in the tech sector, and I have some direct knowledge of this because the company that I worked with, uh, Neil Franklin at uh, Data Workforce, which is still in business, was in that very market, placing contract technology professionals all over the world. And he tells me that the business is more cutthroat than it was years ago when I, when I walked away from it. It's far more cutthroat. And the customers, well, the customer is the company that's actually putting the employee to work, is pushing more and more responsibility to the contract recruitment agency. So the way these jobs work is it's not like, let's say, Jackco goes out and hires you to work for me as a contractor at my facility. Usually what happens is a big company like, I don't know, Comcast, uh, comes to Jackco, the recruiter, and Jackco recruits you and I pay you and you work for them as my contractor. And that creates a whole other level of things. If I have you going to work every day, 40 hours a week, reporting to me, and I tell you when to show up, how to show up, how to do your job, etc., you may not be Comcast's employee, but you're mine. And I have to treat you like an employee. For you to be a contractor, I have to give you a, a project, sell you to the, uh, the company... You bill your time there, and you, and you turn that into me, and I bill them, and I pay you based on your time, but you can't be told things like how many hours to work each week. You can be given an allowance, like you can work up to 45 hours, 50 hours, 40 hours, whatever. And generally speaking, contractors are going to work those hours. But I can't even tell you, you have to show up by 8 o'clock. Okay? Now, there's ways that that kind of sort of can be backdoored in. Like, 
since you're working on this project and work begins at 8 o'clock, if you want the project, you have to be here when work begins. But if I start giving you a set schedule, I'm moving, like the government's got really tight on this whole thing. So now the technical recruiting agencies and all the recruiting agencies and all these contract niches are cutting each other's throats. It's becoming a very hard business for them as well. So the more flexibility that the, the contractor offers, the more attractive they are. So it's probably the case that you're now, you're saying you're getting called by these recruiters. You will likely, if your name's out there, get called by four or five recruiters from four or five companies for the same exact placement if you seem to match it on the same day. And that makes it seem like there's tons of opportunity, but there's only so much really out there. The, the, the frequency of contact from recruitment would lead you to believe that maybe there's more than there is because they're all fighting for the same scraps of placement. So just understand that. Now, here's my view, because the original question is, with all this going on, and with the fact that it'll probably continue, is it reasonable then that it would be a good idea to be flexible and able to move around? Well, yes and no, maybe, depends. So most of this stuff that's really hot right now is around technical things involving computers. Computers have this thing called an internet connection that's available to them that allow people to do a lot of the shit that employers seem to want a person on site to do without ever being there. And if they're a contractor, if they're not good, you just get another one. So there's a low risk quotient there. So if I were a person looking to increase my income by going into contracting, I would do everything I could to put myself into positions that I could telecommute into those positions. And And, and, and basically say, if you really want me as a contractor, that's how I work. That's how I work. Now, there are some positions that you're needed on site because you have to interact in real time with other people on a team. Maybe it's an installation, like if you're putting switches in, slotting cards, doing things like that, uh, or, or you're doing testing that has to be done at the facility because when something's wrong, it has to be corrected with a, a physical hardware concept or something like that, then those positions require that. But I would be moving my skill sets more and more toward the skill sets that allow a person to be nimble and agile and respond from off-site. I know one person, I won't give away his name because it's kind of a secret, he has seven clients. All seven clients really think that he works just for them. If you go into his office, he has seven computers set up. Is a T1 coming into his house. And each one of those computers is basically like a standalone little mini network. Right? Like a VPN within a VPN. And he works for all seven of those companies simultaneously. Computers up all the time. Certain things are being monitored. Certain things are being responded to. Phones answered. But he works 40 hours a week. But the guy's billing four times seven, about 280 hours a week. And everybody's happy, right? Now, if they knew, would they be happy? Probably not. But when it comes to him meeting their requirements, everybody's happy. Everybody's slap happy. Everything. This guy is great. He does everything we need. We get all the information from him. All the stuff gets configured the way it's supposed to. Everybody's flipping happy. Now, some people would say, well, is this... Is this unfair or whatever? Well, I don't think so because it's not really an hourly rate thing. He's being paid per project. So they give him a project, he's paid a certain amount. Now, 
The easy way to do that for a contracting agency is just say, well, you can work up to 40 hours a week. And, but if you're basically paying for a contract on bid. So this project that I'm going to work on for the next X number of weeks is going to be a $10,000 project. Well, that's what you're going to bill against. You're going to bill all up to that, that number. The customer gets what they want. They budgeted that much money for it. Everybody's happy. I'm not suggesting you do this. I am suggesting, though, there are some unique opportunities out there. I mean, in theory, I could have 10 or 12 computers set up in my office. I could be subcontracting work to people, my minions that come in, overseeing the whole team like a project manager. And, you know, again, would companies get bent out of shape if they knew that? Yeah. Should they? I don't think so. I don't think so. See, this is the new world we're entering now. It, 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 we are coming from a manufacturing mindset, a plant worker mindset, in a world that doesn't really have an apples-to-apples apples comparison. It's like an apples-to-petunias comparison. The, the concept is that the employer decides, you need to spend eight hours a day doing this. And the reality is, what the employer needs to say is, I need X done, this is how much I'll pay for it, Do it however the hell you want. That's liberating the worker and freeing up their time and their talent and giving them the creativity to be better at it. I, if I hire someone, I don't care if they pay a personal assistant out of their own pocket that does half the work. I care that the work gets done right. That mentality is slowly starting to seep out. And I think that with automation, with technology, with telecommuting, with virtual nations, with virtual currencies, the, the, the evolution that you'll see of things like this in the next 20 years is going to be mind-boggling. There are going to be people running empires from a cell phone that are that initially in their, their dealings with people, people say, I'm doing business with Jack Coe. And Jack Coe is going to be some dude running around all over the place, doing whatever the hell he wants to, managing a network of, of talent that deliver the services and paying them. And some of those might be completely, totally autonomous services within the VN, virtual nation concept. More on that toward the end of today's show. Anyway, the flexibility, yes, but I would say I would rather you develop the flexibility to work without having to go to the office than the flexibility to be able to move around physically. But either one does work. Before I finish up on this, just so you understand where we're going, when I was in the technical space, You could make two and a half to three times the money as a contractor. Yeah, you had to pay your own health insurance, but most of the guys doing it were young guys. You could get health insurance for $120 to $150 a month. They covered almost everything back then. So there was a real incentive to contract back then. Yeah, you had to go places. Yeah, you had those times of, you know, today contractors are making one and a half times maybe in many situations. There were contract jobs I had that paid, I would say, five times the rate that you would have gotten as an employee for the same company doing the work. And it used to be a really good gig. It still has potential, but you're going to have to be more creative with it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Adam in Wisconsin. I was wondering if you would consider making your theme song available as a ringtone download. Um, I'd really like to hear that. Thank you. 
This will be a quick one. I uh, don't really know how to format something so you can use it as a ringtone or anything, but I sure as hell know how to upload an MP3, and I realized that like, there's no place right now to get The Revolution Is You. I've never put it on the site for direct download because it was always available from the artist who did the majority of the writing, the performance, the music, the mixing, all the stuff, Greg Yoves, uh, who, who wrote that song uh, with me a long time ago. Uh, but RevolutionRockAndRoll.com is not up and hasn't been for a long time. I've heard on and off from Greg over the past year or two, but not really uh, in where he's at and what he's doing. So uh, it is my song. I guess I can make it available for download. So if you want a copy of our theme song, the full song in MP3, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and in the center column you'll see a, a box that says connect with TSP. It says like subscribe on iTunes, my LinkedIn profile, Empire Avenue where you can buy free stock in uh, TSP and stuff like that. The last bullet point there now says download The Revolution Is You. It's a direct link to the full MP3 of The Revolution Is You. And uh, you may chop it up, make it into ringtones, however that works. Uh, it's available Uh, you can grab it right off the website now. Thanks for that, because I really never thought of it. And uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Heather in Colorado, uh, erroneous in the forums. Um, I was recently listening to a gentleman's question about whether or not he could sustain a, a cow on five acres. Um, I recently asked this question and couldn't find the answer because our soils are so poor Um, I was concerned about overgrazing some new parcels that we had recently purchased. So where I found my answer finally was with the county extension office. So they have done extensive studies as far as what the arid plains grasslands can handle, and they they determine it um, by by animal um, by an animal unit. So what that means is basically they're basing it on one beef cow, and that's an animal unit. So you can, so basically two or three sheep might equal one animal unit. So what I would recommend is that this guy contact his county extension office, um, and usually they're, they're somehow involved with the assessor's office, and they'll be able to tell you what for your area is a normal load for a piece of land. So anyway, that's, that's just a starting off point. Clearly, if you've done some some enhancements and you have other fodder grown, then um, it, it may enhance your ability, but that's where I would start. Thanks, Josh. Bye. Well, I agree and I disagree. Okay, so in the, the permaculture space, holistic grazing, holistic management space, uh, some people I think that are have never actually raised animals Look at the work that I'm going to reference, like from an Alan Savory, and say basically that conventional ranchers and farmers don't know anything. Well, that's not true. These guys know how to raise cattle, and uh, they do a good job with it. However, the stocking unit densities are based on one type of thinking that are recommended from like agricultural extension agents and things like that. And the stocking densities used in holistic management are based on an entirely different type of thinking. The animals are moved much more rapidly, with much greater thought, with a much more intensive plan. And, and to me, unless you're talking about sandy desert with nothing, yeah, you can raise a cow on five acres. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that any reasonable, if it's any way grazable, 
That's enough land for a single animal. And I would say it's probably um, enough for a couple. And then we also have to think about an animal unit. An animal unit is not a cow. It is based on a cow. It is based on the average body weight that a cow is 1,000 pounds. So if I have a cow and her calf, I do not have two animal units. If the calf, if there's if the cow's roughly a thousand pound animal, and the calf is a two hundred pound animal, at that point in time, I have one point two animal units. All right. So, um, and then do we bring any supplemental feed or what have you? I really though recommend that if people want to really understand what can be done with cattle to rehab land, if it's done right, to look at the TED Talk by Alan Savory. And he will show you land where the only thing that was done is cattle were grazed. And he will show it to you at the end of the wet season, meaning it's in the best shape that it would ever be in if left alone. And then he will show it to you in the end of the dry season, several seasons later, after it's been holistically grazed. And it looks better at the end of the dry season than it used to at the end of the wet season. He will also show you places in America where you have national park on one side of the fence and uh, public managed grazing on the other, doing it the way we do it based on their recommendations and the two sides of the fence. No animals have been grazed on it for a 100 years. And over here, it's been grazed for a 100 years, and it looks the damn same. It looks like crap. Savory says, and I quote, I put animals in at stocking densities anywhere from three to five times the recommended stocking densities. But I put them in much smaller paddocks, and I move them much faster. And in doing so, I rehabilitate landscapes. So before anybody comes to these concrete conclusions based on animal stocking units, etc., based on conventional thinking... I really recommend looking at alternative thinking, holistic management practices. The work of also people like Greg Judy up in Missouri, I think, would be great to look at as well. Anyway, I'll put a link to a video by Greg Judy and one by Alan Savory in today's show notes. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from uh, Central PA. Uh, I had a question uh, regarding Google culture. Uh, I found it recently and started to research it a bit. Uh, my main question would be there seems to be a divide in uh, setting up the Google Beats whether um, the first time you have them set up, obviously the rotting wood would uh, use most of the nitrogen uh, in the soil. Um, I planned to uh, plant a cover crop with some uh, legumes and white clover to help uh, with the nitrogen problem. My main question would be is, uh, obviously planned on planting annuals, uh, non-heavy feeders such as green beans, uh, tomatoes, and whatnot, but I also planned on eventually planting some bushes such as aronia, high bush, uh, cranberries, currants, Gumi bushes, things like that. My question, my main question would be is, can I plant them right away in the spring after I uh, set up the beds, or would you recommend uh, planting mostly a cover crop and annuals in the spring when the Google Bee is set up initially, and then planting the fruit bushes in the fall? Uh, thanks again. Appreciate your feedback. Uh, keep up the great work. 
Okay, hugel culture, for those that haven't heard the term before, in its modern usage in North America anyway, is one way or another burying a bunch of wood, covering it with dirt, and then planting into it uh, with a polyculture mix and uh, or, or a cover crop or what have you. Uh, and, a, and a good layer of mulch definitely is really essential in most situations. That's That's what it is. And by burying the wood, we accomplish... Uh, quite a few things. Everybody talks about the rotted wood core being a sponge and it holds a lot of water. And it does eventually, but I've actually broken down what actually makes Hugel culture work. And it is not just a sponge. It is um, actually, I broke it down to seven main things that Hugel culture does as to why it works. One, it's carbon farming, which creates resiliency. So by sequestering a large amount of carbon into the landscape, we, we start to, the whole functioning of the carbon cycle, and that leads to greater life and greater uh, resiliency of everything in that landscape. The next is it promotes fungal activity, by, and it's, that speeds up the formation of the fungal hyphae. Fungal hyphae actually attach themselves to the roots of plants within their own soil and in a symbiotic relationship exchange nutrients and moisture with the plants themselves, actually almost grafting themselves as an additional plant root structure in return for what they gain from the plant. Not to mention the whole concept of having you know, 500 kilometers of, soil, of, of fungal hyphae and a square meter of soil represents a massive amount of ability to retain moisture in of itself. The next is the cores are not really reservoirs. It's not a, a sponge that holds water. It's a wick that pulls the water up to where the plant can get to it. If you dig a hole fairly deep anywhere most of the year, unless it's really the desert, the, the, the dirt down a few feet deep is wet. It's moist. So how do you get to that moisture if the plant's roots aren't deep enough to get down there yet and you take the wood core and it, it wicks the water up? So if you put a, a shallow pan of water out and stack 10 sponges in it and left it there for a long time, you come back later, the top sponge is wet. You can take it off the stack and squeeze water out of it even though it never touched the water. So it's more that it's wicking up. It's making the ground into a giant self-watering container. Okay. The next thing is... It's a nutrient and nitrogen trap. It's important that I say that for when I answer this question, you understand like this, it's going to take up all the nitrogen. Just stop that. I don't want to hear that anymore from people with culture. It's not going to take all the nitrogen away. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Damn it. Stop it. It's a nutrient and nitrogen trap, meaning that it holds nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. It's a great big trap, not a sink. And by holding all of that there, it gives the system greater long-term resiliency. It provides food for soil organisms. Wood is food for fungus. Wood is food for all the little creepy crawly things in there. And all the little creepy crawly things that come in there and die are food for other creepy crawly things. And when they poop, their poop is food for other creepy crawly things. Okay, So it's like supercharging your pond. right? So the soil, you've got to think of like a lake And so when we, if we dig a pond and we just have this pond full of water 
If we just sit there and wait, eventually we'll probably be fishing it. Sooner or later, enough things will go on and happen, and a bird will poop, and some fish eggs will get in there, or they'll be on the foot of a bird or something like that. But if you want fish in there, the first thing you want to do is establish a plankton network, and then once the plankton network's established, you can put in small uh, feeder fish and, and snails and other organisms, and then that pond will actually support larger predatory fish. And the faster you can get the plankton up, and the small zoom protoplankton and, and phytoplankton up, the faster you can get the pond into a position where it will support predator-level fish. Well, when you put wood cores into a garden bed, you've, 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 you've just like supercharged the formation of your plankton in a pond. Okay. The next thing is they mimic natural forest formation. Forests grow on fallen forests. Giant tree falls in the forest, lands on the ground, leaves the detritus, everything starts forming on top of it. That opens up a space. We call that space a glade. That's what a glade, we hear the Everglades, that's what that is, an open space that's at least the, 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 the width of the, the height of the average tree, an open space in the forest. That glade with that dead tree laying in it is where all the new plants start coming up and competing for light and they grow right on the body of that tree. So we're mimicking the forest. And it holds the structure of the landscape to reduce erosion. By burying wood, we actually create the ability to put in raised beds without any kind of retention walls if we don't want to. They kind of stay in place as long as your chickens don't dig holes in them. Okay, so that's, that's what hugelkultur does. So if we're only thinking sponge and we're only thinking one-dimensionally and we're thinking we're going to lose our nitrogen and we're thinking about timing and all these other things, it gets like a little bit scary. You get to like, well, if I do this, is it going to work? Is stuff going to grow? Uh, first of all, your perennials, like your aronias, etc., need less nutrient, not more nutrient, less nutrient, especially quick nutrient, than your annuals do. Even your light-feeding annuals. An annual has to grow to its full size and produce what it produces in one year. Fast growing, right? An amaranth seed that looks like a little speck of dirt can grow into a 10-foot-tall plant with a stalk as big around as a large man's forearm in 90 to 100 days. Now think about how much nutrient that plant needs. Now, it doesn't have anywhere the density that a tree does when it's that size. You know, it, it feels solid, and you cut it right in half with a machete, and three days later when it dries out, it's, it's really, really light like balsa wood, right? Lighter than balsa wood. But it still has to put all that biomass on. So that needs a And growth is where the nitrogen goes. When you want to put on size on a plant, it needs nitrogen. Phosphorus and potassium are more about other things like balancing uh, the overall health of the plant, producing blossoms and producing fruits or whatever that plant produces, okay? Or seed, what have you. So the nitrogen is important to the growth phase of the plant. So what do you do about this when you're putting, because the, what happens is that wood cores carbon. So what does carbon want to do when it sees nitrogen, especially in a, a decay state? It wants to bond with it. It binds it up and it begins to compost. Okay, But all the nitrogen in your pile of dirt is not going to get all the way into the wood and be all bound up with the wood in one season. The wood's going to do very little rotting in the first season. The second season it actually might take more nitrogen than the first. If we use pre-rotted wood, it's already taken up a lot of nitrogen. So it's not going to take up that much more at that point. If you're really worried about it, put your wood in the ground, go buy a $6 bag 
of blood meal. Sprinkle blood meal all over the wood. 12 parts nitrogen you just put in. You just put in there enough nitrogen to fertilize 10 garden beds. You gave it all of the wood. Let it have it. Put a layer of compost over it and then put your regular stuff in the top dress it with compost and, and plant it. So I would plant it to whatever you want it to be. You might have to do a little bit of fertilization your first or second season. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. If you want that system in the perennials, I would not hesitate to put perennials in the system in the first year. I would be a little more likely to plant for the second year, but not for the nitrogen region. Uh, it will settle some. And if you plant some perennials, you could end up with root exposure problems and things like that uh, in that first year of settling in. Depends on how big it is as well. But I have hoogles here that I planted with annuals and then success to perennials. And I have hoogles here that I just put perennials straight into. And I can't tell a hell of beans a difference. I really can't. And my soils and my environment is probably a lot less forgiving than yours is. So I would, I would design it with the end in mind. And there's no, you see, and there's the other thing. So you put an aronia in and it's a little bitty plant you can hold in your hand and it grows into a sizable bush. You put it in the first year, it's a little bitty plant you hold in your hand. Put your perennials in and, and seed the shit out of it with vegetables, annuals. Don't even worry about it. Let your perennials be enveloped by annuals. You know, put a, a couple bamboo stakes wherever your high dollar perennials are in so you can find them. And when they get a little bit too enveloped, go in there with shears and just cut the cowpea or whatever off of them so they don't get completely smothered. And let them exist in that, that, that massive mob. And grow your annuals with your perennials for multiple seasons if you want to. Just keep carpet bombing it with seed. But like your currants, your aronias, etc., gooseberry, whatever you want to plant, put it in there. When we did the project in Montana with Sepp Holzer, we put in like two kilometers of, of, um, of, uh, of hugel beds, and we planted potatoes, corn, beans, all kinds of seeds. And then he went back through with fine seeds and, 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 and cast the seed down on all of that. But we also planted currants, gooseberries, trees, bushes, rhubarb, comfrey, you name it. It all went in in one shot. And when somebody said something about the nitrogen sink, he just went, <laughs> and he like waved his hand. Like, I don't, I don't even want to talk about that. Just plant a bunch of shit, get the exudate actions working, get the fungal activity up, and it'll work. You can also consider inoculating your wood with some sort of a fungal component if you want to. That helps to get that whole activity kicked off. A little bit of biochar never hurts anything, but just do it, and don't worry about this nitrogen thing. If you want to add nitrogen, go ahead, but don't do it from fear. Do it from, ah, it's cheap, and there it is. All right, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Pip Gal. I've been listening to your show a long time. I got a couple questions about diabetes. Not asking you to diagnose, but in your opinion... And from your research, what kind of herbs and plants um, may be um, beneficial for reducing blood sugar? I'm sure a lot of your listeners would like to know that because diabetes is an epidemic in our country, unfortunately. And number two, uh, on a survival kind of uh, uh, view of looking at things, is it true that... Uh, we're dead meat. <laughs> so um, is there any way for diabetics to survive using some natural stuff if it's not too bad where they need insulin injections? Okay. Thank you very much for your answer. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Bye-bye. 
I have some thoughts on this that I'll share, and I have some great resources for you, too, uh, including one from Doc Bones and Nurse Amy of Doom and Bloom uh, to talk about natural ways to help mitigate diabetes. And, uh, you know, I want to start out with the second part, right? Are, are, are you guys all dead if, there's, if the shit hits the fan and the end of the world as we know it comes? Well, first of all, if the type of the end of the world as we know it ever happens, the way that some people believe that it just has to happen, and soon, by the way, um, there's probably a lot of other ways you could end up dead before you're dead from lack of insulin, okay? If it did happen for the type 1 diabetic, the person that is born with a genetic disposition and it's just the way that it is and it's not a lifestyle disease like type 2 generally is, the only thing you can do is some of the stuff we're going to talk about here in a second and then basically slowly starve them to death to, to, to feed them as little as possible, uh, to control the blood sugar as best as possible, and to feed them less even than everybody else being rationed is at a point where they're almost on a starvation diet, and hopefully you can milk them along long enough until you can get insulin again. Okay, this is probably not going to happen. The end of the world as we know it, from the standpoint of dogs and cats living together, uh, and having puppy kittens, and, and zombies marching, and patriots to come and collapse, is not going to happen. The modern world isn't all going to go away. The electrical grid is not going to shut down forever and always. It is not going to happen. And if it does, we all have major, major problems. It's not that it can't happen. This is probably not going to. And you, just like you're probably not going to step on a, a lottery ticket with gum on your shoe, find it, pick it up, and win $50 million in the Powerball. It could happen. But don't plan your life on it. So let's just take that off the table. But that would be what you would have to do. And the longer that situation remains, the more serious it becomes for the type 1 diabetic. The type 2 diabetic. 98% of type 2 diabetics will be miraculously healed if the shit hits the fan. Because as soon as they can't eat in massive quantities and screw up their blood sugar anymore... Uh, the, and, and they have to go on a restricted caloric diet just due to requirement that there's just not that much food, they will be healed, just like Benny Hinn would do on a televangelist show, except it's real. Okay? It's real. And people get mad at me when I say this, but I'm sorry, I'm right, you're wrong. Just sorry, that's just the way it is. Now, the, I, I have learned there are a very small number of type 2 diabetics that you can't fix it with dietary controls. But there was a study done at the University of Arkansas with like 400 type 2 diabetics that were placed on an 850-calorie-a-day diet for six months. And the cure rate, no traces of diabetes whatsoever in their lives, was 100%. 100%. Most type 2 diabetics are purely lifestyle-related. The little piece that isn't, you could just consider them kind of like type 1s that you don't call type 1s. It's a very small number. You can be mad as you want, but it's true. I'm telling you, I've done the research, I know. Now, how can we mitigate the symptoms of diabetes with um, natural remedies? The two that I know that work, one is cinnamon, not the cinnamon you buy in the store. Real cinnamon, Saleon cinnamon, which I talked about recently in the show, is one of the best things 
to help control blood sugar. And the other one, believe it or not, is growing all over the place, and people think it has no value other than as an ornamental. It is crepe myrtle. And I did a whole show, or not a whole show, a whole segment of a show where we talked about this, and one of the listeners that is diabetic tried a tea from it, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to put a link to that, that show so you can listen to that segment if you want to, but I'm going to read a comment. Her name is Carol. This is what she said. Hi, all. I am the she Christopher was referring to in his last email to Jack. I'd like to know one of the medicinal use for every plant I see and happen to notice crepe myrtle Sunday and set out to learn if they were edible or medicinal. Being diabetic and not able to use any, any of the drugs currently available, I was excited to find Omega Prepper's website. Checked out the links listed for WebMD and the other references and decided to make the tea. I checked my sugar before and after drinking the tea, I tested five minutes after I drank the tea, which was already down 85 points. I uh, even had to add honey because the tea was watery. I'll be testing a lot today. I want to see how long the effect lasts. So far, so good. But with all herbs and people, results vary. Uh, be careful. Go slow. But that is encouraging, and I, I don't make recommendations, so I'll leave it there. Now, I'm also going to put a link in today's show notes to an article by uh, Amy and Bones uh, at Doom and Bloom, and here is the list of things that can be helpful in diabetic control. First, from a nutrient standpoint, magnesium, vandium, chromium, zinc, B1, 6, and 12, C, D, E, COQ10, coenzyme Q10, alpha-lyptic acid, and fish oil. From a standpoint of herbs, ginseng, clove, cinnamon, golden seal, coffee, fenugreek, olive leaf, uh, bitter melon, ginkgo biloba, and then they list as may someday be useful, mistletoe, cayenne, onion, primrose oil, hibiscus, uh, psyllium, crepe myrtle, golden seal, aloe, bilberry, basil, uh, and uh, guillemot. So I'll put a link to that article that's very in-depth, and there you're dealing with a nurse practitioner and an MD. So those are people that can make recommendations and tell you what to do, and I'm going to refer you over to their recommendations uh, for further information on this. But again, please those of you that think, when the shit hits the fan, start saying at least, at least take this step for me, if the shit hits the fan. When you mean it the way we're talking about this end of the earth, you know, uh, all be gone thing, it's it makes interesting fiction. It makes great movies, but in history, the greatest tragedies that we can dream of and horrors beyond what most of us are capable of understanding, and you learn that in the history segments we do, have already happened, and yet society did not go away. Governments did not go away. Governments collapsed, and new governments rose, and usually it was not for the good. Stop living in the fantasy world and start preparing for life. And please prepare for a life worth living, because that's probably what we're going to get if we create it for ourselves. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Shane. I have a quick question for you. We've got a beaver on our 125 acres that we're leasing that we're hoping to do a restoration agriculture-style uh, farm with. And I was curious, is there a uh, better permaculture way to return the surplus of this beaver other than just to turn it into compost after we shoot it? If you got a better idea, give me a. Uh, I love to hear it on, on the on the show. Thanks. Um, beaver is a, a great fur bearer, so I would definitely skin the beaver if I killed the beaver. I'm saying again, if I killed the beaver, and I would tan the hide, uh, and I would either use it for personal use or I'd sell it. That'd be one thing. Um, I've never eaten. 
uh, a beaver, but I do believe that it probably is pretty dadgone good eating. I know the old trappers used to eat, uh, eat, eat whatever meat they had from just about anything other than probably coyote. Um, I never trapped beaver because they were in such low numbers back when I was a trapper in high school that um, it just it wasn't even legal. If there was one alive at the time, then you weren't even supposed to trap it. Uh, you were not supposed to even trap in an area where there might be the potential to harm a beaver back then because they were so protected. Uh, they've made a pretty good bounce back, and they're all over the country once again. And in some areas, they really are a nuisance. We do have them right here. Uh, right here in Texas, and uh, I even remember one day I was out fishing this little creek that runs underneath Highway 360 and goes into Joe Pool Lake, and I'm sitting there fishing, and all of a sudden I hear, boosh, and it sounds like somebody's hurling like freaking cinder blocks off the bridge. So I look up there, and I'm pissed, man. I think somebody's pitching rocks at me, and then a couple seconds later, boosh, now I'm mad as shit, and I go up, I'm pissed. I'm ready to thump somebody, and I'm looking like an idiot because there ain't nobody up there. I'm looking around, and I go back down there. What the hell is going on? I think somebody's jacking with me. Bloosh! And what it was, it was a beaver downstream seeing me, and he was splashing his tail, and they'll make this big splash. So uh, they can be annoying, and they can damage trees, especially if you're in a restoration agriculture system. Here's my, my, my statement for you, though. You don't have a beaver. Beavers are not a one-animal one thing. They live in, in families and colonies, and you only get beavers... From other beavers. They don't magically appear. They don't spontaneously generate where water is. So you have beavers, not a beaver. Which means even if you shoot the beaver, you may still have beavers around. And if you, Unless you're going to go on a wholesale beaver slaughter, you may have to find a way to coexist with the beaver rather than to eliminate the beaver. You may figure out ways to incorporate the beaver into your permaculture design. They do some things that can be useful if we understand their behaviors and channel it. And if we went all along where the beavers are, are doing their thing and planted a whole shitload of rapidly growing, easy-to-harvest trees that fix nitrogen like alder, uh, they would probably spend a lot more time doing that than going way up bank to eat your fruit trees in your silvopasture. So you might have to find a coexistence, uh, is all I'm saying. I'm not going to tell you you do have to or that it is necessary, or that you're wrong for killing the freaking beaver. If if he really is a problem, and his, his, his kin are really a problem, they have to go, they have to go. Uh, but I would look into ways to utilize the, the fur. Um, that said, down here I've talked to uh, some guys that work for game department, stuff like that, that see them as a real problem. And they say the fur on a beaver in Texas is never useful. Like, there is no time of year. And then in more northern climates, there, there tend to be really valuable fur later in the season, early winter, uh, or early to late winter, um, when their fur is full on. And during the, the, the early fall, the spring, the summer, they're kind of tattered looking. That's most fur bearers. So you do most of your harvest in the winter season. That's when their fur is full on. So you might want to think about the timing of the beaver elimination uh, protocol if you plan to use pelts for any purposes. But those are like the only things I can think of. You eat it, you got the pelt. Um, but I would prefer, if possible, to figure out how to coexist with the wildlife on a property, if possible. Um, for people with a few fruit trees, even up to a few hundred, simply putting uh, chicken wire around the tree is all you need to do. But if you're planting thousands of trees... The expense there can be more than the beaver is worth, probably. Uh, we do have them right here also, just a, a little bit away from me. There's a uh, 
Uh, on Lake Worth, there's a nature center, and we have found uh, all kinds of chewed up, you know, pieces of wood and, and beaver huts and beaver dams. And you, it's kind of cool when you find a piece of wood you can tell was gnawed through by a beaver, bark gnawed off it. It's kind of cool looking material that you can actually work with and do some little projects with. And I tell you that because it's surrounded by woods and they're not all gone. It's not like the beavers take every tree out. So one way might be to provide a beaver buffer zone where there's trees that they're free to take and use as they please. Um, let's take another call. Hey, Jack Richard in Idaho. My question is on soaring earthworm or composting worm castings as well as dealing with high acidic uh, issues in your vermiculture bin. Background is I'm going to be using a lot of coffee grounds and filters because the office that I work at, there's about five different coffee makers. So instead of letting that go to waste, I'm throwing them in there. But I know that that will lead to high acidity. So instead of throwing in lime, can I throw in a larger amount of eggshells into there to help counteract the acidity and not bother the worms? I know it's a lot of trial and error and to see what works out. But I also want to know throughout the winter, What can I do to store my worm castings? Will they be fine in the fridge? Can I freeze them? How will that work out? I don't want to destroy the microbes that are in there, but it's better than throwing them away. And was just wondering your thoughts on that. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Bye. I'm going to start with what to do to store your worm castings, because if I don't do it first, I'll forget. Um, put them in a bag or a bucket or a container and stick them on a shelf somewhere. They're not going to go bad. It's worm poop. It's there's you don't have to freeze it, you don't have to refrigerate it, you don't have to do anything with it. In fact, there's not much case to not go ahead outside unless there's ice on the ground, you know, you can't get to it and pull back your mulch and, and put it to the ground even then. Um it it can go anytime and it's not gonna wash away, it's not gonna go away, it's not gonna be useless. But if you want to save it for future use for whatever reason, just throw it in a bucket. Get a five gallon bucket and keep adding it to it and You know, snap a lid on it so it doesn't dry out too much because any kind of compost, if it gets too dry, can become what's called hydrophobic, which means like it just won't get wet anymore. And you have to put a wetting agent on it then. It's not a huge deal, but it's why do that if you don't have to? So like a really light dampness to it and keep the lid on it and, and keep it on the garage for, for all intents and purposes. Okay, now the coffee grinds. Here's the answer. Don't feed your worms exclusively coffee grounds. I don't care how much you have. I don't care how much you have available. It, it, don't feed them coffee grounds exclusively. And yeah, you can, the paper filters, that's fine. And go straight in there, no problem. I would do this. Build up your coffee grounds in five gallon buckets, a handful of kitchen waste, vegetable waste, to two handfuls of coffee grounds, to four or five eggshells crushed up. And mix that all together and throw that in there, and you probably won't have an acidity problem. The eggshells themselves will help to minimize and neutralize the acid. Uh, and, and you want to, cr I mean, crushed eggshell. Like, I would tell you the best thing to do is throw, like, let your eggshells dry out, uh, let them get good and dry, and then throw them in a blender and, like, pulse the blender till they're, like, not dust, but little chips. And then, you know, do that with, because I can't tell you off the top of my head, but do that with like four eggshells, right? And then look at how big that is. And then just bust a bunch of them up and keep them in a box. And then you, you measure that amount and say, okay, that would be equal to four eggshells. And you probably won't have a problem. So what do you do? Like You're probably going to have more coffee grinds than you have eggshells and then you have uh, kitchen waste. So what do you do? Well, don't 
Don't try to make more worm compost than your worms can compost. Don't. Get some oyster mushroom. Start growing oyster mushrooms, even if you don't like to eat them. All right? So you take a five-gallon bucket, you break up an oyster mushroom, you mix it into your, uh, your, your coffee grinds, and keep it moist, and keep it in a cool, moist, dark location, and let the mushrooms do their work. And then you're making vermicompost and mushroom compost. And coffee grinds that have been uh, composted with mushroom are beautiful in structure. Uh, I almost think they're not their overall value, but their structure is even nicer than worm castings. The way they, they fluff and air up soil. The other thing is, if you don't want to do that, you can put coffee grinds straight on the ground. They won't burn. They'll compost in place. You can do all three. But just don't try to overfeed coffee grinds to worms just because that's what you have. And the nice thing with composting worms in a composting worm bin, the worm population will grow and shrink to accommodate the amount of food that you're providing them. So just stay within the limits of what's reasonable. And again, I would say a handful of coffee grounds to a handful of kitchen waste or even two coffee grounds to one handful of kitchen waste and somewhere between two and four crushed eggshells all at the same time, and you'll help to mitigate that issue. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Chad, MSB member from Tennessee. I have a question about using hog panels to raise chickens. I was thinking about setting up a paddock shift model. I'm trying to keep the neighborhood dogs out and the chickens in and wonder if hog panels would be a good solution for this. Thank you. Bye. Well, I'd do it. Um, mostly for brooding, though. I take my young birds when they're big enough to come out of the brooder, And uh, it just works out better than a, a smaller chicken tractor. I use the eight foot panels for chickens that are about uh, five foot tall, and I just zip tie a whole bunch of uh, uh, like a netting on there because I had a bunch of it. So I use this, this chick netting that I was trying to use with stepping poles, which just didn't work on my property, and um, and it works fine. And they'll freestand for you. I use removable zip ties. I get on Amazon.com. They have a little push tab where you can take them back off and put them back on. And you get several months before they kind of crap out on you being used that way. I zip tied four of them together. I got an eight foot by eight foot square. And I put my baby chickens in there. And what I give them to sleep in? A dog kennel. Like a, like a dog kennel you put your dog in in the back of a truck. Plastic one with a metal door. Put a bunch of uh, uh, straw in there for bedding. I uh, put a, a canvas over the top of it if I think it's going to rain. I string that canvas from the dog kennel up onto the uh, onto the hog panel with uh, clothespins to give them shade and it, it, during the day when it's hot, and they do great in there. Now, I'm putting 15, 20. Uh, this recent run, I did 30 birds in there. Now, 30 adult birds cannot go in a space that size. So it depends on how many and how much you want to do and how big you want to go. If you got 16-foot panels, that's a pretty big area, but they're going to get out. They're going to fly out of there. My little bitty birds, when they're about five weeks old already, they're, several of them anyway will be coming up and out of there. A way around this would be you do four panels and bring two of your ends in about six inches each. Take a foot away. Take two more panels and put them on as a roof. And you'd have a, a self-contained chicken tractor you can move around. And it would be hard to put some sort of a wheel mechanism on there. Once the birds are big enough, they can't slip underneath. But you're going to need to put some sort of a, a screen around the, the thing as well. They're infinitely configurable as well. I mean, 
it stands to reason that you could basically set up a system where you had like one would be built in front of the next and you just take the wall down and when they all go in there you rebuild it in front of it. I've thought about doing that but it's an awful lot of work. Um, I would tell you if you can step poles in the ground, ElectroNet is just easier. It weighs less, it's faster to move, it's easier to deploy, etc. And it works better. The problem with any kind of a, a non-electric fence with chickens is they don't have to be able to fly over it. They just have to be able to fly up onto it and get their little chicken feet on it. And even if they're a half a foot below the top, if they can grab on there, they can keep flapping and climb their little asses up, and they will get up and over, even with clipped wings. I've got birds right now that I can't keep over where they belong. I'm looking at two of them out there digging holes in my damn yard. And uh, one of them might end up hanging from an oak tree tomorrow because he's a cockerel that I don't really need. Um, the other one's one of my red pharaohs, and uh, my jury's still out on how I'm going to deal with those. But you can definitely do hog panels. You're just going to have to put in some kind of a chicken wire netting something in addition to because they can slip through those panels. And, again, they'll freestand for you. You can put them together with zip ties. I've done 16-by-16s for the ducks and geese. The lower ones you can step over. That worked great. There's no reason you couldn't go with higher 16-by-16s. It's going to be heavy. Um, I would definitely go into a construct-deconstruct model if I was going to go that big. And uh, one way or another, you're going to have to keep them in there. And I guess if you get a really big, heavy breed and clip the wings, maybe you'll keep them in there. And if they're, they're born and raised in there and they don't know no different, you might keep them in there. But, I mean, I've seen red sex links, um, we call uh, Buff Orpington, uh, Rhode Island Red, heavy breed chickens get right up and out of them before they're even full grown. So you're going to have to figure out some way to keep them in, either some kind of uh, inward bent top uh, or uh, a complete roof or something like that. And I'm still working on how exactly... I'm going to tractor some trios of, uh, of Rhode Island Red Roosters and Egyptian families for my, uh, f uh, my Red Pharaoh project this spring. Uh, but it does work. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is David from Tennessee. I'm about 45 minutes an hour north of Pickwick Lake area, and I just got a huge bag of mimosa seed. And I was wondering, when's the time to plant that? Figured I'd give you a quick one today. Talk to you later. Thanks for everything you do, Jack. Well, there's two ways you can do it. You can plant them, you know, in, in winter and keep them in a greenhouse or something like that and get them off to a start and then put them in the ground after your, your last danger of heavy frost. Um, and, and, you know, even if you have some light frost yet, even if it's a young tender plant, it will, it will survive. It's a tree. It's designed to deal with that situation. And uh, you probably won't gain much from it, though. You'll probably spend all winter uh, looking after little bitty trees and uh, taking care of them and putting a lot of effort out there. And, and if you did what I'm going to tell you to do next, uh, at the end of that, that first season, the tree probably wouldn't look much different in total size. Okay, So I'm going to say plant them in the ground, and I would say you want to plant them uh, around your average last frost day is probably best. They can handle some frost, but you're going to be doing an artificial planting. The way a mimosa tree plants is it drops a kabillion seeds, and if, if 50 grow, the tree's happy. It's done its job. It's, re, it's procreated the species. You're going to be trying to get a much higher success rate, so you're going to do some things that are going to speed germination, cause all the seeds to germinate at the same time, 
And because of that, instead of a sporadic germination, where some will germinate in early spring, some will germinate in summer, some will germinate five years later in the wild. Because there's a coating I'm going to tell you how to get rid of. Called The process is called scarification. So this is what I would do. About a week, uh, no, no, I'd say about four or five days before you want to plant your seeds. Get a pot, boil in water, and get a pot and boil water in it. Put all your seeds in a container. Uh, make sure you have enough water to cover your seeds. Get the water boiling. When it starts boiling, take it off and give it a couple, you know, 30, 40 seconds to stop boiling. So it's not literally boiling as you pour it. Pour it over your seeds. Leave them sit overnight. The next day, take the seeds out and get paper towels that are damp and spread your seeds one layer deep on the paper towels and put your paper towel over top of them. Keep it damp in a somewhat warm area, 65, 75 degrees, somewhere in that temperature. Within two or three days, you'll have little bitty roots sticking out of a whole bunch of seeds. Those are the ones to plant. They're the ones that are going to grow. You can plant them all. depends on how many you want to plant, whatever. Go out and put them underneath about a half inch of soil and let nature take its course. You have a whole big bag of them. You can have a lot of them die and still have a lot of daggone trees. And they're a great tree. They're a nitrogen fixer. They look good. Uh, people use them in landscaping now. Bees love the flowers on them. And they're beautiful. They're also known as the silk tree. They don't do anything edible for human beings, but they are a great tree as a nitrogen fixer, etc. That's how I would do it. And I would put those seeds in the ground after your last average frost date. I'm not going to say after all danger of frost has passed, because little bits of frost ain't really going to hurt them. They'll recover from it. They're designed to. Um, but I would say about your average last frost date, because to say after all danger is usually two to two and a half weeks after that date. And I don't know that it's worth losing that. If you have that many of them and you're worried about it, scarify half of them and put them out around the last frost date. And if you have a lot of losses, scarify and plant the rest of them. But I'd do it in the spring, in the ground, where you want them to grow, after the scarification process. You can do it another way. You can just scarify them, leave them in the water overnight, and then plant them. But if you do the paper towel treatment, you'll be able to identify the ones that are viable. And you can even then take all the ones that didn't germinate and, and put them through the whole process again. A lot of them will the second time through. Um, I actually say the best thing to do with those is put them back into a, a thing of like tepid room temperature water. Don't scarify them with the heat again. It's just a lot more efficient way to do it than sitting there and scratching each one with some sandpaper. There is a coating on them that inhibits water from getting into them. And this is so it takes a very long time for that to wear down in nature. You know, they get eaten by an animal and then they, they go through the, the gizzard and they don't get, you know, completely de decomposed uh, by the gizzard of a bird, for instance. The bird crafts it out, they grow, they get into a river or a stream and the water beats them off gravel and they end up somewhere else. Or all different types of things happen to scarify them in nature. And again, if 1% reproduce off of a tree, it's made hundreds of new ones. So nature's put this coating on there to guarantee that there'll be viable seed for many years from one tree's successful uh, seed production. And to guarantee that some of those seeds will be transported and this, this plant will spread. That's why some people in the South consider it invasive, because it grows in places. But it doesn't really hurt anything. All it does is make soil more fertile and feed beneficial insects and bees. So that's what I would do with it. Uh, good score on the seeds. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. I need a recipe for groundhog. 
Um, I've had a groundhog this summer that's just been doing terrible damage to my garden and uh, finally caught one uh, in a trap. I have a heart inside trap. And uh, actually, I guess really maybe the real question is, what do I do with them? Do I find a place and let them go? Do I just kill them and bury them? Or do I use them as a resource and hook them up? Thanks. I appreciate your thoughts. Bye. When anybody wants to take an animal that's generally considered a pest or a predator or a vermin and release it, my response is, so you want to take your problem and make it into somebody else's problem. So generally people don't like groundhogs because they dig holes, and if you've ever walked and tried to step over a blowdown and your other foot went into a groundhog hole and you did a one-legger over a blowdown tree, you see why you'd hate groundhogs. If you have cattle the bane of your existence because they make holes and the cattles break their feet and break their ankles and break their legs in them. Uh, they generally don't do a lot that people appreciate. Now, they have their place in nature, and I understand that, but I'm actually more inclined to get rid of groundhogs on a property, uh, or I would say to cull them to keep their numbers down uh, rather than try to eliminate them than I am the beaver that we talked about later, earlier. And um, eating them? Yeah, you can eat them. A lot of people think they're nasty and whatever. There's no reason to think that. It's an animal. It's an herbivore. Uh, it has kind of a darkish, darkish, lightest meat, somewhere in between pork and beef. Um, they can be a little bit greasy, especially late in the season when they have a lot of fat on them. But, you know, kind of think of them as a mixture between bear meat and pork. It's kind of the flavor profile that they have. And more, more mild than bear meat. Uh, I should say more mild than bear meat that's not handled properly. There is some things to worry about there. When you go to skin them, they have these little kernel glands, some on their back and some on their armpits. You need to make sure you remove those and don't break them open because there's some pretty nasty stuff in there that can kind of taint the meat on you. It's not the end of the world, but you'd be better off without it. Uh, you'd prepare it like you would any animal. I mean, you skin it. Uh, you clean out its innards. Uh, you wash it out well. Uh, I would, if you have the ability to, hang it whole, skinned and gutted, uh, in, a, in a cold environment, whether that's hanging up in a refrigerator or a cellar during the cold time of the year, uh, and let it hang like a little cow, like a little deer you would hang in, in and let it kind of, um, a little bit of lactic acid and muscular breakdown to be all right. But I've eaten them the same day they've been shot as well. Uh, but that muscle fiber relaxes. And different meats have different times that that animal needs to be deceased for those fibers to relax to the point where it's going to be a, a possible to get a good tender result. You can go out and take a really great beef cow, shoot it in the head, bleed it out, skin it, quarter it, and, and cut a, a beautiful steak off of it an hour after that cow was dead, and that steak is not going to come out the way you want it to. That meat needs to age. It just does. Groundhog, it'd be good if it aged at least at least 24 hours, if not 48. And it's a small enough animal, as long as you set it somewhere where it's not going to be, you know, like suspend, suspended, like on a, a um, like a meat rack or like uh, like a thing that you put like cookies or breads on to cool, like a grate like that, so that it's not like if it drips at all, it's not sitting in its own dripping, so it'll dry age. You can just set it in a refrigerator. Once that's done, then you cook it. I would cook it any any recipe for rabbit would be a good way to go. The general good way to cook them is to get a good hot skillet with some onions and carrots and celery, uh, your mirepoix, and braise it, and then slow roast it. 
Another way to do it, in a way that I've done it a lot, because I used to shoot a lot of groundhogs, and I got to a point where like I, don't, I just don't feel good about throwing away all this meat. So I started experimenting with it, and it's pretty good. And one way is you quarter your groundhog up, so you've got your back haunches, your back boning, your front haunch, your front shoulders and all, and uh, take the meat, wash it real good, and uh, soak it in salt water overnight. This is after you've aged it. And take it out. I'm talking like, two tablespoons of salt water to a big enough pot to soak a whole groundhog in. It helps get the last bits of blood out and things like that. It helps tenderize it a little bit. Take a pressure cooker. Pressure cook it only for about 10 minutes. It'll tenderize the hell out of that meat, though. And then grill it. High temperature grill, nice seasonings, a little bit of barbecue sauce if you, if you fancy that. That's another way to do it. I would definitely try my new squirrel method of cooking with groundhog now that I know it. I didn't know this method uh, back when I when I used to eat groundhogs. There's no groundhogs around here. Same thing I said, you know, age it. Make sure it's bled out well before you age it. So the first thing I would do after you kill it is bleed it out. Hang it up. Cut his, cut his throat and bleed him out. Okay? Get all the blood out and then gut it. And and that will help you end up with a much cleaner carcass if you do things that way. Um, but so you've done all that, you've aged it, you've you've quartered it up because it's pretty big compared to a squirrel. I do it with a whole squirrel. Soak it in salt water overnight. The next day, pat it dry. Let it sit on. I'd actually let it come up to room temperature for maybe half an hour uh, on paper toweling so that you, you get a nice dry uh, piece of meat to work with pieces of meat to work with rub it with olive oil or peanut actually peanut oil will be better for this because it's a higher temperature you're grilling at right so rub it with peanut oil and sprinkle it liberally with chef keith snow's montana steak seasoning trust me on this let it sit there and let let it kind of bind on there a bit get your grill up to a nice hot brazing temperature and and put it on and and braise it Right, sear it, flip it, sear the other side. Take it off, put it into aluminum foil, seal the aluminum foil so nothing can get out. You know, double over roll, right? Set that off on indirect heat and slow cook it in its own flavor and juices after being braised on the on the non hot side of the grill for about forty to fifty minutes, probably for groundhog. Test it with a fork. If it ain't tender, just keep doing that till it is. I, I've never done it with a groundhog. With a squirrel, I braise it and I, I slow cook it for about 25, 30 minutes. Groundhog, I'm thinking you're gonna have to cook it longer. It's not gonna overcook because it's completely sealed and you're on the you're on the indirect heat side of the grill. You're at like a low to medium medium heat enough to get it up to temperature over there. I usually actually want to do it with squirrels. I put it on the hot side of the grill on like like I said low to medium. And get it hot, so that you know you can feel the pouch and it's vibrating because like the juices and stuff are starting to boil, and sl that way you've got you know you've got the inside air temperature up. Slide it over indirect heat. When I do squirrel that way, it is fantastic. I mean, I I, I would have never thought steak seasoning married to a, a, a game animal that's more like a rabbit than a piece of beef, but it is fantastic and it gets so tender it's the salt water soak that helps to break down the muscle fibers giving that meat a couple days to to dry age in the refrigerator 
right? Um, those two things together help with that breakdown of the muscle fibers. Then the seasonings that he uses in that Montana steak just marry with that kind of meat so well. And then that hot sear that sears that seasoning onto the meat, and then that slow cook is just awesome. So just when you thought there were no more uses for Montana steak seasoning, we need a slow-cooked, indirect heat, seared groundhog. Let me know how it works out for you. You might find yourself looking for more groundhogs to shoot. I know if they were around here, I would. Every once in a while you get a big old male and it stinks, man, pitch it. It's, there, there's certain animals that at a certain point they're just not worth messing with. I would say boar hogs at a certain size, and when, they, when they just reek. Uh, or if they and, and with groundhogs, if they look mangy or tore up or anything like that, you could have some off stuff, so don't eat it. Always, when you butcher an animal, inspect the liver. If the liver looks diseased, I hate to throw away meat, but unless I was starving to death, I would. Look at the liver, look at the heart. A healthy animal's heart and liver look healthy. The liver from a groundhog doesn't sound good, Right? Make sure you get the the the, uh, the the gallbladder off it without breaking it. Take the liver, especially of a couple of them, and and put them on paper toweling in the refrigerator uh, for a couple hours. This you can do fresh. It's much better fresh. But you want all the, the excess blood kind of to, to come out of them. And when they get cold, they'll firm up a little bit. Very thin sliced. Very, very thin sliced. Any big veins or anything like that cut out of it, but very thin slices. Sorghum flour. Very light coating of sorghum flour. Hot oil with garlic and onion and fry them, flash fry them quick, a little bit crispy on the outside. Try it. You wouldn't think groundhog liver would be good? People that hate liver, if you do that with chicken liver, it works too. Uh, but groundhog liver, I don't know why. There's just maybe it's the way they eat and what they live on. They're 100% herbivore, and you got to do that fresh. That's if you're not going to do it in the first day, boil it, chop it up, and give it in small amounts to your dogs and their food. Do not feed a dog your liver from any game animals in large quantities at any one time, unless you want to clean projectile poop off your walls and big giant S curves where they're trying to wipe their burning butts on your carpet. We did it one time with a Yorkshire Terrier. We gave him a bowl full of deer liver, and my God, the results were horrific. You have been warned. Let's take one more, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Richard, Houston area. I wanted to call on a kind of a, I guess, a follow-up with uh, a listener feedback show the other day. You were talking about the virtual nations and their, their virtual currencies and their acceptance. When you talk about the acceptance of them and, and how they're coming and they're, and they're being established, People are going to start jumping on this and really, really start participating. I think you're you're a lot closer, even in some mindsets, than than you you, you know. Uh, similar systems already exist, actually, in the video game world. There's a large groups of people that are already doing this, but not obviously as seriously as, as an actual virtual government. But it is. Uh, there are video games out there that have exist, existed for over a decade, but essentially, people log in online with other people. They log in with other people. They have their own virtual identity. Uh, it's, a, it's a secret identity that, that connects you to your, your online identity, right? 
you have in those games, you you have your identity, you have your own money, the economic system, you work for things, you, you mine for things, you find things, you trade with other people, you build up your money like you would in, in any other world, but this is an online world with your little character. And then it goes even further that that virtual currency is exchangeable for real-world currency. And uh, that's actually getting more and more implemented as a part of the system instead of a, a third-party kind of um, black market. Uh, essentially, it takes time to build up currency in the game. And so what people do is they go on eBay and other, other uh, you know, uh, online exchange systems, and they sell their virtual currency for real-world currency in, in any government form. So I go on eBay and I buy 10,000 um, video game platinum and for 100 bucks, and it, ta- it would have taken me 40 hours, you know, or, I don't know, 10 hours to, to do it in-game, but instead I just buy it for, you know, whatever I want to pay for it, and I get it. It, it already exists. People are already accepting it. They just see it as a form of entertainment. It's not too far-fetched. Possibly that same group of people naturally seeing what you're saying and going, well, that makes sense. I already kind of do that in real life. I'm exchanging a virtual currency for real-world currency. Why wouldn't I do that for my grocery or anything else? So you're on key, and there's already groups out there accepting it that don't know they're accepting exactly what you're talking about. And I don't think it'll be long, possibly not as long as you even foreseeing this to really take hold. But anyway, if you want to make that connection, I know you don't know a ton about video games. And, uh, right, so that's a cool comment to uh, wrap up on, because I am fascinated with the concept of the virtual nation theory. And I think that no matter how far out we take it in our minds right now, that the actual evolution of virtual na- virtual nation thinking and humanity beginning to create a, a multi-tribal effect throughout the world with voluntary association is a natural evolution of our species. I do not believe it is the natural state of a human to live in captivity. I do not think it is the natural state of a human being to be told what to do by another human being. I believe that the human being is optimized and built for liberty. That that's how we were that's how we we came onto the planet. That we were as free as we chose to be and we chose to associate with each other for mutual benefit and over time those with the psychopathic tendency to wish to control others utilized the basic fears of human beings to manipulate us into systems of control that became more and more sophisticated. We're, you know, in the history segment right now, we're going through the feudal era, where we had lords and ladies and dukes and barons, etc. And this was a whole system of control with the people in control constantly trying to kill each other. The reality, though, is controls become more and more effective over time as the tyrants have learned to cooperate. So as they've created their own tyrant tribes... They've become able to get larger and larger systems of control, and instead of fighting with each other for total control, they realize if we can get enough control, there's enough for all the tyrants to have plenty. And we'll still have battles who gets to be the top tyrant, but there's a lot more collaboration of tyrants today. Well, it's time for us to start collaborating. Now, on the video game thing, I am aware of things like Second Life and things like that. And I I can't say that it hasn't crossed my mind that this whole Bitcoin cyber currency thing was just a natural extension of that. Like, people looking at that going, well, if it can work there, why can't it work this way? And then let's try it, and yeah, it does. And let's make it immediately exchangeable instead of having to go through a third-party intermediary like an eBay. Um, I do play one game like this. I do. 
I don't really play it, though. I do what's necessary for it to function enough so that I get exposure through it. It's called Empire Avenue, and it's a virtual stock market where bloggers and social media types and companies with social media presence, which is what TSP is, make a ticker symbol, like a stock market, for their company, and they, they freely trade for something called EVEs. Now I am a I have a hundred million plus Eves. I am a wealthy on Empire Avenue. I guess I don't know. I don't care. Uh, at one time you could buy shit like virtual boats and stuff with it. And that kind of went away. I think it was silly. And you've got a real serious business functionality on Empire Avenue. And if I had time, I'd actually learn more because they have these things called missions that you can use to promote your business. I look at it this way. If I'm listed as one of the top 100 business stocks for dividends and value, I get seen by hundreds of people a week that wouldn't see me. Some of those people will come into the audience, so it's a promotional tool for me. It also gives me feedback because the primary way that your stock increases in value is by people buying it. They buy it because it provides a dividend. The dividends are mostly tied to your social media activity. So when I do a good job of promoting my company in Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and YouTube and all that, my dividends pay better. So it gives me real-time feedback. So I log in two or three times a week and buy some stock. I just take all the money that came in in dividends a half a million to a million eaves at a time and buy other people that are doing really well because they pay more dividends so I can do more, like an investor. I don't really think about it, I don't really care, and I don't get butt hurt if something doesn't work out. I don't care. I mean, we are talking something that I spend less than 10 minutes a week doing. Far less than 10 minutes a week. Now, what that makes me think of, though, is I wonder what eaves trade for on eBay. I don't know. I'm going to see if they trade on eBay right now and what they trade for. And what would be the value of my 110 million EVs? Probably not that much, but let me check real quick. The answer is nothing. You can't buy them, you can't sell them, and I should have realized that because of the way Empire Avenue runs their thing. You can only buy so much stock in a person, and you can't transfer EVs. You can only purchase stock or do things with them. So maybe they, they thought about this when they did it. Maybe they're a little more clever than the average gamer. I don't know. Uh, and they also sell EVs, so uh, they wouldn't want to dilute their own market because you can buy them instead of earning them. So who knows? They give you some when you sign up. But if you want to, you can sign up on Empire Avenue and buy stock in TSPC. That's our ticker symbol there. I don't know if it does me any good or not, but again, it doesn't take much time. But there's another example, and there's an actual monetary economy really working there where you can get different people to do different things for you by giving them Eve. So these missions, and I don't understand how that works at all the time, but there's things that people do to earn, you know, you buying their stock or, 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 or things like that. And there's a thing called Vs, which are a different type of currency on there that I don't know anything about. So all of these games do have this kind of economic system built into them, and there's no reason the game can't become a reality because... Uh, the, the, the game did become a reality when the Federal Reserve started making money by buying nothing with nothing and calling it something. The American dollar is an illusion. There's, there's no real value to the American dollar apart from the fact that the economy creates value and the dollar is the means of exchange within it. There is no reason that if people wanted to, they couldn't create their own currencies. In fact, they have. So the, the way that currencies can be created is fundamentally limit, limitless. And the more creative we get with creating currencies that are verifiable, divisible, and immune to counterfeiting, the more 
different types of economies and different types of virtual nations we can create. And I know some of you think this is all a pipe dream and all a gimmick, but you know what? Every major innovation in, on planet Earth in human history has been thought of that way by people that were entrenched in the current way of thinking. That'll never work. That'll never work. Because here's the thing, right? So Second Life and, and games like it are things I have, uh, World of Warcraft and whatever, they all have these components to them from my knowledge. I, I think they're stupid. I, I think they're dumb. I don't think they have any value, but I'm see, I'm wrong when I say they don't have any value. They make the people that own the systems a fortune. The market determines whether something has value. Not you or me, yet we're the market, but we're not the market. We're one little tiny mouse fart in the market. The momentum of the market decides what's valuable. And entertainment is a huge value. And, and frankly, it's going to be one of the biggest value propositions going forward as we need labor less and less. But see, labor is a key component here. Have you ever asked yourself, What makes gold and silver worth money? Well, they're scarce and they're real money and they have a. No, bullshit. I can show you things that are more scarce than gold that don't sell for as much money as gold sells for. If you look at the total reserves available in the world, there's less of it. Gold, the primary way gold and silver derive their value is how much human energy or how much energy, whether it's human or fossil fuel or otherwise, does it take? to extract an ounce of gold out of the ground, purify it, and put it into a form where people can go, that, I know what that is. That is one ounce of pure gold. That is one ounce of pure silver. It is the activity, it is the energy sink that makes that have value. That's what prevents you from being able to just make a kabillion ounces of silver. That's how virtual currencies work. They're controlled in their production through a mathematical mining process. And by restricting the production, you create a perceived value due to a scarcity. But then you have to sell your market on using it, right? So I can right now create something completely unique that only one of a kind exists anywhere in the world. I can take the lid off of a ball jar where this is sitting in front of me right now. I can take that lid and I can get a hammer and a nail and I can put a certain pattern of holes in there and I can sign my name to it and I can number it, zero, zero, one. And then I can swear to God and everything around me that I will never make another lid like that at all, ever. And it will be the only one ever. And no one will give a shit. And I could make a thousand of them and say there will only be a thousand. Zero, zero, one, zero, zero, two, zero, zero, three, all the way up to one, zero, zero. And say that's it. And everybody goes, we don't care. We don't care. But if, but if the economy accepts that as a currency... If the market decides to use that as a currency, they would be extremely valuable because there's only a thousand. The problem would be they could be forged so easily. So, so currencies have to also be immune to or highly resistant to counterfeiting for them to be effective. Or the people using them have to exist in a very high degree of trust with each other. The, very, the, the psychological contract has to be very, very high. But don't think because you think something's stupid that it doesn't have value. I'll give you a for instance. Back right about the time I got out of the Army, there was this thing coming out called Power Rangers. I thought that this was the dumbest thing that I had ever heard of in my life. I saw this on TV and thought, no kid's going to watch this stuff. This is the dumbest, hokiest, stupidest. I'm like, when I was a kid and, and watching cartoons like Under Frickin' Dog, I still would have been like, this is dumb. 
I would not watch. There's no way this thing's going to make any money. So like a couple years later, I'm at a mall. And there's kids like all the way lined up through the mall. And the line goes back down the other side like a snake. And I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? It ain't Christmas time. It ain't Santa. What is good? And I go in there and I, I find the front of this thing. And there's, you know, a bunch of people dressed up like these Power Rangers. The, the, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers have come to the mall. And these kids are going up to meet them and get a picture with them. There had to be a thousand freaking kids at this mall. And I left. I'm like, I can't be here. There's too many children for me. I just too many people in one place. I got to go. But it was this Power Ranger thing. And when I met Dorothy, our son Matthew was about six years old. And he was Power Rangered up, man. He had Power Ranger this and Power Ranger that. So if I had been an executive at a television station, and you brought the Power Rangers to me back in you know 1990, whatever it was, and said, this is my idea for a show, I would have, I would have laughed you out of the place. I would have had you, security, and, and a black glove would have grabbed you, and yanked, waste, you, you owe me money for wasting my time. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Get out of here. But the market, and I wasn't the market, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds were the market. The market said, we like that. And the franchise is probably worth a billion dollars or something like that. And it's still around. I can't believe it, but it's still around. Now you say, well, it's just, that's just nonsense or whatever. It's not. Nothing that makes a billion dollars is complete nonsense. It has value to somebody. To understand how virtual nations can transform the world, you have to understand that there are billions of people in this world. And if a hundred thousand choose to do business a certain way, that is an economy equivalent to a micronation. At least. It's certainly the economy equivalent to a major metropolitan area. When you start looking at the biggest cities in, in, in the United States, you, know, you start out with like six, six million people in places like Houston. The Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex as a whole has like 6.2 million people. You know, Los Angeles, millions and millions of people. And it rapidly falls off to like a million, sub a million. And you start seeing cities down toward the bottom of the list or metro areas like Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton with 100,000, 150,000 people in there. Now, these markets are big enough that major corporations put a single sales rep into them, right? They're, they're important enough to them to do that. So you can build 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 headcount markets with micronations. And then you can sit back and say to, to, to governments and to companies, you figure out how to do business with us. And if you don't think that's possible or you think that's fanciful thinking or you think, well, when the world ends as we know it and all the Internet goes away and there's a CME and it, 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 uh, you worry about that. I'm telling you, people are going to build ever loving fortunes on these concepts and it won't fix all our problems, but it will begin to demonstrate that the state is not as necessary as humanity has been led to believe. And if I can teach you one thing here at the Survival Podcast, that's what I would like it to be. That the state is nowhere near as necessary as you believe they are. You don't have to believe that there is little in need as I do. You don't have to be like the micro-minarchist that I am. You don't have to go all the way to the world of anarchy. Okay, You don't even have to come all the way to the side of anarcho-libertarianism. 
If you'll just simply say, you know what, here's three things I thought we needed government for that we don't need government for. My job is done. And you're on the path that heads toward my direction pretty dead gone quick. Give it a shot, you'll see. Just open your mind. You'll start to realize how... Because here's the problem. Every, and it's, it's not just about the need of the state. It's the need of the state, the need of corporate apparatuses, the need of education systems the way that they are now. The need for everything. People say immediately, we can't without. It's impossible. There's no way to. If you'll just start to ask the question, how? The mind switches on, the solutions flow, and when solutions start to flow, it's not long before actions begin to implement them. That's the way to live your life. Always ask how. Stop thinking can't. When you do that, you will find a path toward greater individual liberty and freedom, and you'll begin to take action on it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Show you.